Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I am John Fusco. I'm Liz Nord. And I'm Eric Lures. And it is November 15th, 2018. On this week's show, The Death of a Superhero, our favorite books on cinematic technique, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hey everybody, we're back here in Brooklyn, and it's the week before Thanksgiving, and uh, we were just talking about what we were going to do. Yeah, doesn't it feel like Thanksgiving is earlier this year? I, right? Yeah, it I does. I like that too, because there's like this extra week hanging on to the end of November. I yeah. think it is. I think it's a week earlier. Perhaps I was wrong. I always thought it was the last Thursday of November. but That's, I, what, that's what I thought too. Yeah, I guess that's not correct. I don't know who makes these rules. Hanukkah's earlier this year too, for those of you paying attention. Really? It is the first week of December. And what's up with New Year's being on December yeah. 15th this year? Christmas. <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> you know what? The whole world is upside down. That's very true. It is, and one of the things that we need to talk about this week, there was, wow, there was a lot that happened last week uh, in the real world, um, getting out of our cinematic bubble, but one thing that kind of combines both of these worlds uh, was the Woolsey fire that has been um, raging through Southern California all weekend uh, and all last week, really, and it's still going. And one of the locations that it actually burned down was a famous historic cinematic relic called the Paramount Ranch. This was once a 2,700-acre space nested in the Santa Monica Mountains that overlook Los Angeles, and it served as a versatile film and television set since 1927. Obviously, the fire has claimed lives, homes, and forced scores of evacuations. The loss of a western town set is nowhere near the top of the list of tragedies or even inconveniences of this disaster. Westworld is the most high-profile project to utilize the Paramount Ranch western town location, but the list of all projects shot there is long. Consider that some of the earliest projects on this list are W.C. Fields movies from the 1920s. Wow. It was also used in Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Whoa. That's Eric's favorite show. I, used, I actually did watch that as a little kid. Uh, she was really great with all those diagnosis, <laughs> diagnoses. There aren't many monuments or old things in Los Angeles, but as George Edelman, our new senior editor and resident of Los Angeles, writes in his coverage of the fire, Paramount Ranch was one of those funny little exceptions. A near 100-year career is rare, especially in this town. In the 1920s, the land was purchased by Paramount to use as an outdoor location. The area has changed many times since then, but continued to be used frequently for much the same purpose. The National Park Service purchased and refurbished the land in 1980, and it has been available to the public since then, which gave the location with a rich history another rare distinction. People could just come to visit and picnic there, unless, of course, it was being used to film something. The devastation of these fires has been fast and swift, as we said earlier. CNN reports that the Woolsey Fire has spread to 85,500 acres across Southern California, and it's about 15% contained. A second nearby fire has covered 4,531 acres and is 75% contained. So far, the blazes have destroyed 179 structures, another 57,000 are still at risk, and I think the death toll is now up to 48 or 49. Uh, for more updates on the Woolsey Fire, you can follow the Los Angeles County Fire Department on Twitter, and we'll attach a list of places you can donate time and resources to help with the catastrophe in the article associated with this post. I just want to add that uh, I know a lot of you, our listeners, are in the Los Angeles area and also in Northern California where 
even further uh, wildfires are raging and lives are being lost. And we just want you to know that uh, you're in our hearts. We're thinking about you and uh, hope that you're all safe and sound. And a rare but positive change, of course, coming from the movie Big Wig Higher Ups, the British animation studio Ardman, which is the Oscar-winning studio behind Wallace and Gromit and uh, Rashawn the Sheep, which was not that long ago. Chicken Run. Chicken Run as well. Um, flushed Away. Remember that one? Where they're like, I think they actually get flushed. It's like rats in a toilet or something. Yeah. I didn't I didn't see that one. Uh, they're actually transferring company ownership over to its employees. So that's right. The decision made by the company founders Peter Lord and David Sproxton will go into effect once the two gentlemen leave the company, which may not be soon, but will obviously eventually have to happen. Quote, we spent so much time building this company up and being so profoundly attached to it, the men told The Hollywood Reporter, and it's not a business to us. It's everything, and it's our statement to the world. Having done that for so many years, the last thing we wanted to do was just flog it off to someone. And they're, they're British, and they, that's why they're using the word flog. Just want to flag that, that they said flog. <laughs> uh, now, The Hollywood Reporter also notes that Ardman employees are around 130 full-time staff members across its two bases in Bristol, England. But the figure jumps to around 320 as production teams are hired to work on their major films, so such as the currently shooting Farmageddon, a Shaun the Sheep movie, and also will be immediately followed by Chicken Run 2. Right. Finally. So it's coming. I know, right? Farmageddon. Uh, <laughs> I was talking about Chicken oh, Run 2. Oh, okay. I you know, it's only that. been like 14 years. It's about That's time. True. Well, I mean, it's been 20 years since Armageddon. I assume Farmageddon's a sequel. I assume <laughs> Bruce Willis comes back to life, makes it down to earth, and he's like, where are all these sheep doing on my lawn? Yeah, Bruce Willis is voicing Sean the Sheep, who, if I'm correct, is a mute sheep. He might be. A... Is it a mute sheep? That's a rare talent. Wow. It's a mute character. That's kind of like when, it wasn't George Clooney hired on South Park to be a, a dog, and he just barked? You yes, know? he was. So it's, it's a thing. At least he's not doing Pikachu the detective. Hey, or, that movie looks awesome. It, it looks interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it looks like, but it looks interesting. Also, to continue on with this story, quote, Lord said, despite having made the decision to prevent the company from being swallowed up by a big studio, both the Ardman founders admitted that they hadn't actually had all that many offers over the years. It's quite insulting, really, joked Lord, who revealed that DreamWorks had made the suggestion when they were working together on Chicken Run, but they resisted it then and are still fiercely independent. So while the two men aren't set to retire just yet and will most likely remain in a board of directors capacity when they ultimately do, it's great to see that they are already looking toward the future and are going all in on paying their good fortune forward. The company will remain independent and employee gaining the profits, if you will, run, and hopefully all the better for it. So Ardman has remained, I believe it was founded in 1972, and it remains an independent company and, of course, most known for Wallace and Gromit and is now has such a strong, passionate, sophisticated, if you will, fan base, I'd say. Uh, it's nice to see them kind sure. of holding on. Yeah. Sophisticates. Right? I'd say it's a sophisticated to like that uh, their work. You know, it's like... Good for adults as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's not purely uh, child-based. And I love that story. It's such an indie film weekly story, like a a studio that is really committed to remaining and so committed to remaining independent that it's selling itself to its own employees. Yeah, that's badass. Absolutely, that's a good look to the future. And John, earlier when you talked about uh, the longevity of careers in Hollywood, it reminded me of this next story. Um, there's probably one person whose work we've referenced more than any other person on this podcast over the past three years, and usually without even saying his name. Today, what are you talking about? What? Nicolas Cage and Manny. I think it's Erica Cohen. 
We've said, we've said Mandy so many times. That's true. We yeah, should I have a Mandy you... drinking game for that one guy that's listened to every single there is, podcast. There is a Mandy drinking game. Is there already a Mandy yeah, drinking there's game? There's a Mandy drinking game. My oh. friends played it while they were watching it. Uh, and it's like you have to drink every time drink the screen blood every turns time? red. Oh. Uh, every, there's there's a whole bunch of different oh rules. That would be... You die of alcohol And we'll link to that in the podcast post. Meanwhile, I'm trying to tell a serious story sorry, here, guys. Sorry. <sighs> So today I'm going to say that name for the saddest reason. Stan Lee, epic personality and comic book godfather, the founder of Marvel Comics, passed away earlier this week at age 95. He was so iconic that I found it hard to believe he would ever leave us. Though they say this about everyone, he truly will live on in his work, which he was still creating even up to this year he had a new comic come out. From his brain emerged thousands of comic books, hundreds of iconic characters, and dozens of the most popular movies of all time. It probably goes without saying, but I'll name just a few of the universes that he created or co-created. Black Panther, Spider-Man, the X-Men, the Mighty Thor, Iron Man, and the Incredible Hulk, a.k.a. John. And they weren't just any old characters. He changed the whole way we think about comics by giving his protagonists depth and flaws and making them outsiders. And in so doing, he also changed perceptions about what heroism means and how to treat the other. And he was beloved for doing it. If you want to see some incredible fan art, check out the Stanley hashtag on Twitter. I went down that rabbit hole and actually was really uplifted. I, I couldn't believe the talent that's out there and how many people owe their, their thanks and their careers to him. Um, I also saw a great tweet from Electric Ghost magazine that pretty much sums up my feelings. It said, Stanley did more for popular culture than any other artist. He's a symbol of progressive entertainment who changed the world, not with intellect or politics, but an appeal to the individual's imagination. Rest in peace, Stanley. We hope the Guardians of the Galaxy are taking good care of you out there. Did he also do Ghost Rider? I don't know. Oh, because that starred Nicolas Cage. It's true. It wow. did. Did he do Ghost Rider? I think that. I don't, may, I don't maybe know. Maybe not. So. Oh, it's not Marvel? Or? It's, it's I'm like. Not sure. We've had so many. Uh, obits and like so many legendary figures uh that we've reported on yeah. in this show and it's just i like it's nice to see stan lee lived a full life yeah, this <laughs> was know? definitely not before like, his time yes yeah. he was 95 he cemented a legacy well we're, we're paying tribute we're not yeah. like mourning and yeah early. exactly right. yeah he wasn't taken away too soon right and uh, I think that the saddest part about this whole thing is that he's not going to be able to see how the Avengers end. Oh, my goodness. I'm sure he knows. You don't think they let him? They say, come on, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure he was an intricate part of it. I wonder if they pre-filmed his cameo. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, well, it's done It's yeah. done filming. So, okay. yeah, I'm sure okay. he was in it. And wow. uh, that'll be interesting to see oh, his last cameo. Oh, it'll be sad to see his cameo. I will say I, I am a little bit relieved in the sense that some publications were inaccurately announcing that Spike Lee had passed away. Oh, oh Jesus. Geez. No, they were yes, not. I can. Sh- I will share you a, a photo afterwards. There is a picture oh, of Stan Lee. so irresponsible. Spike Lee passes away at the age of 95. <laughs> and I was like, what? Hell? And then it turned out that they had messed Oof, that I'm up. I'm just glad that was not nofilmschool.com. That was not Spike Lee. It was Stanley. Well, uh, I do have one question. I was thinking if you're like, if our, if any of our listeners are some of those people that don't watch anyone's work until after they've passed and suddenly they're like, oh, I should see some of that work. What would you recommend as like a starting Marvel Cinematic Universe film? Iron Man. It has to be the first, I guess. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Iron Man, um, the first and second Spider-Man with uh, the one true Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire. Toby. Mm. 
I was thinking um, some maybe, of the X-Men I was films. Thinking, I yeah. love the X-Men. I was thinking maybe the first Avengers because it brings in a lot of the beloved characters and it's sort of like really accessible. You don't the need first, to know all the histories. The first Avengers is good. It's like, uh, I think like now it's sort of more of like a paint by the numbers superhero movie. Um, and when it came out, it was like pretty revolutionary. So I don't know. I haven't watched it in a while. So it would be, it's, it'll be interesting to see like how that's dated after this swarm of superhero movies that like superhero we've, group we've had. movies yeah, yeah superhero that's a good group point. movies but um yeah i mean you know the superhero genre uh owes stan i was like looking at there's there's a a list of how much money each stan lee movie has made or something like on the Ooh, top if i could do the wolf whistle thing uh, out of like the top 20 of all time he's probably on there like at least 50% of the time. Freaking bananas. Um, and he seemed like such a humble guy too. Like it wasn't like he was this megalomaniac rich guy. He's had he there there are if you if you di- like kind of dig into his past a little bit there's some there's some uh stories of strife between him and uh some of his fellow comic book wor- yeah. writers and like accusations of plagiarism and sort of like who should actually be uh like attribute attributed this work sort of like a he's like the shakespeare of uh comic books you know like he came up with a lot of the ideas but then other people develop the characters and mm -hmm. so who do you yeah it totally makes sense but still the fact that he was like working until the very end it says a lot about his Mm -hmm. at least his sort of the integrity of his like work ethic yeah i'm planning on retiring at 35 yeah. So, uh, congratulations to Stan. I am too. Yeah. <laughs> I am definitely planning on retiring at 35. I'm, I'm, I'm out. Well under 35. I'm anyway, here is our 35 plus Charles Hain with some gear news. Hey, this is Charles Hain here with Tech News, November 15th, 2018. So, the biggest tech news of the week Teradek has acquired Amimam. And that is big news in the world of wireless video. So, a little bit of background. Teradek, if you don't know who Teradek is, you haven't been on set lately. I didn't mean that derisively, but like Teradek is everywhere. Um, basically, 10 years ago, the only time you ever had wireless video on set was like the Steadicam guy would come out and they'd have like their whole special thing that only worked with a certain TV and like everybody else just worked wired because that was the deal. But Teradek was really at the forefront of really pushing wireless video everywhere to the extent that now by default when you go on set, I feel like even the smallest sets, everyone is working wirelessly because it lets the camera move faster and you're not worrying about cabling as much, and it's great. What a lot of people don't know is that Teradek, Paralynx, Airy, who now have built-in wireless transmitters on their Alexa cameras, everybody's been using Amimam boards. Amimam is an Israeli company, and they've been really working on the zero-delay wireless chipset, the board that you need to use in order to do that HD quality video distribution that sets really require. And so it's been a big deal, Amimam, in the market. You might not have heard of it, but you've definitely used their equipment. Teradek buying Amimam is kind of an interesting move. Um, Now, Amimam has, like, I'm sure Teradek has been their number one customer since 2012. Uh, They buy a lot of their stuff, especially because Teradek and Creative Solutions, the now bigger brand, they own Paralynx, which is another big Amimam board supplier. Amimam is so big, in fact, that there was even, like, gray market, like, either old boards that have been rehabbed or, like, knockoff boards. Amimam, like, Amimam's dominant in the marketplace. But other people have always bought Amimam. Like I said, it's in the 
Aerie Alexa. Those are MMM boards. They're a generation behind what Teradek has. I don't know if it's because Teradek has like an exclusive partnership or if it's just because they're a smaller company so they have faster turnaround cycles. But the technology is out there. The big questions I have about this are whether or not this is a way of Teradek saying, all right, well, other people can't buy these boards anymore because they were already getting early use of the boards. They're a generation beyond the Alexa. So I wonder... I doubt that Teradek's going to cut off sales to Alexa. That doesn't seem likely to me. It seems like it's in Teradek's best interest. So there's an old saying I learned from a friend in business school, which is you never do a merger if a contract would do, but clearly they've already had a contract. I wonder if it's also just that eventually Teradek did the math and we're like, oh, if we own Mom, we'll get the boards from them at cost effectively because it's at, we own the business. And uh, we get along so well with the team and the team will integrate so well that maybe it's just a really good fit. Maybe that is part of Teradek and the over, overall creative solutions growing into bigger things, absorbing Paralinks, among other things. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Honestly, it's like a fascinating business story. I don't know that it's going to affect our day-to-day life on set, although maybe the turnaround time to roll out new products will be faster. Maybe we'll see 4K Ultra HD on set sooner, although frankly, I don't know that I need 4K Ultra HD wireless. I'm more interested in like a Bolt 25,000 that'll give me like five mile range on the Bolt than I am 4K, but that could just be me. Up next, Nikon news. There's the Nikon Z7 and Z6. They're coming out soon. And EOH HD has released a installable log mode for those cameras. And this is really great. Obviously, this is another one of those examples where aftermarket users are providing the features that filmmakers want. Filmmakers love shooting in log. It gives you a wider latitude with while fitting within the linear space. It is a super exciting way to work for filmmakers, and we're all very used to it. And I think a lot of people were really disappointed that the Z7 and the Z6 didn't have it originally on launch. So the fact that we now, through EOHHD, for the $37 uh, software cost, allows you to have log recording on these cameras is super exciting, and we are very appreciative of folks like that doing the work. Last up in tech news this week, early reviews are hitting the streets of the Red Hydrogen 1. If you don't remember the Hydrogen 1, it was a camera phone from Red announced about a year ago. It was like $1,100 or $1,500 if you wanted it in titanium, and it was going to shoot in the, like this future 4V format that was like 3D, video, 4D, all wrapped up together. They're out people are not excited. Um, We haven't had our hands on one yet. We might never get our hands on one. This might be one of those blips that gets released and and then doesn't become anything. I mean, what's cool about it is you can use it as a viewfinder for a bigger red camera. And so for $1,100, that's not a terrible price for a viewfinder. And it runs Android. There's going to be some exciting stuff coming down the pike there. But really, we're in this place where people keep trying to reinvent the wheel of 2D cinema. But if we remember 3D from 10 years ago and some of the stuff at 360 now, there's interesting stuff happening there, but the the leaps in technology are not happening as fast as some people thought. And from what I hear, the video is the sort of semi-immersive video, which you can't see in a YouTube video. You have to see it on the phone. It's just not there yet. Um, and also, until there's like a hundred million people out there with these phones, it's not going to be there because why shoot something that no one can watch? Um, so earlier views disappointing. Hopefully we will get our hands on ones ourselves at some point, but it is not high in our priority list. There's other toys we want to play with first.
I am back with Ask No Film School. Bob Olmsted asks kind of an oddball question, but I like it. I'd love a deep dive book on cinematic technique. Any recommendations? I, mean, this is, I, I just say it's an oddball question because, honestly, I'm going to say that the real answer that most people are super into these days is watching YouTube tutorials, right? Like, you can go out there and you can find a YouTube t- tutorial on, like, the visual design of Kurosawa and, like, the staging of Hitchcock and all of those things. But, like, you don't run into as many situations where people are like, I really want a book on this subject. But, look, I'm a big reader. I've always got a book going. I still recommend a lot of books. So exciting to see somebody who's like, I want to read a book on this. And the number one place I always start people with cinematic technique, look, there's a lot of great ones. The Bare Bones Camera Book, Blaine Brown Cinematography. There's all these great books. But Bruce Block's The Visual Story. Bruce Block is a very interesting guy. He's a USC professor. He's also a producer. He produced It's Complicated, among a bunch of other things. Um, And he is, oh, or something's got to give. Anyway, he's a great guy. Uh, I studied with him when I was USC, and he comes from this long tradition of USC teachers who have been very focused on the abstract quality of the cinematic image and how filmmakers control it. And it is a really eye-opening book. You will never watch movies the same way again after reading it. There's a period of my life where I read it once or twice a year. I've been teaching it for like 15 years, and I still feel like I'm learning new stuff about what's included there. So Bruce Block's The Visual Story really highly recommended read uh i think it's a a great way to start thinking about cinematic technique not in terms of the equipment because a lot of people tend to think technique like dollies and steady cams and lenses and stuff but this is technique of the effect what image are you trying to create and how are you structuring the images you create and then you worry about the technique of how to get there of the equipment that will allow you to use this visual technique so i really highly recommend it And uh, I realized I've never talked about it on the podcast, so check it out. Bruce Block, The Visual Story. And now for some indie movies you can catch this week. Erica Cohn's captivating documentary, The Judge, premieres on PBS's Independent Lens on Monday the 19th at 10.30 p.m., and then it will be streaming on PBS.org. Premiering at TIFF last year, The Judge is about basically the RBG of the Middle East, her name is Khalud Al-Fakeh, and she's the first woman judge to be appointed to the Sharia or Islamic law courts in the entire Middle East. Not only is she a badass, but it's a fascinating look at both sides of the law, especially as we see women in her community who have only ever had the chance to put very personal issues like domestic abuse in front of male judges in the past. Almost exactly a year ago at last year's Doc NYC, I interviewed the director for a podcast about filming larger-than-life protagonists in a podcast called How do you know if one character can carry your whole movie? And we'll link to it in the podcast post. And I'll also say, as mentioned last week, I've been at Doc NYC all week and seen a bunch of great stuff. So uh, I'm looking forward to telling you all more about that in future weeks. And coming to Netflix on November 16th is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, uh, probably one of the most anticipated Netflix releases of the year, I'd say. The Coen brothers originally set out to make this movie a six-part anthology series for Netflix. Instead, the anthology structure of the story with six chapters was retained, but ultimately the project was shrunk down into a single feature film and debuted at the Venice Film Festival this fall, where it won the award for Best Screenplay. Somewhere along the line, Netflix must have seen Oscar potential in the project with the trimmed-down version. Each chapter details a different aspect of life in the Old West. I wonder how long it is. I actually didn't look that up. I think it's like maybe like 140, 45 minutes or so. so Cool. I mean, most... like 25 minutes each? Yeah. When you think about it, like most epic West spaghetti westerns are that long anyways. Totally. 
that's pretty cool. Um, so you can actually download the script online right now if you're interested. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the podcast post if you want to check it out. Um, and taking part in the stories are Liam Neeson, James Franco, Zoe Kazan, Brendan Gleeson, Tom Waits, and the frequent collaborator. Is, is he a frequent collaborator or was it just Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, I don't know of any other ones. Anyways, Tim Blake Nelson is also in it. So uh, he's amazing in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So it's cool to see him reteam with uh, the brothers. The brothers Cone. Oh, wow. Erica Cohn. Um, the brothers Cohn. This is a Cone-themed uh, movie week. Also premiering on Netflix on November 16th is Cam. And Cam is a technology-driven psychological thriller set in the world of webcam porn. It follows Alice, an ambitious cam girl, who one day discovers she's been replaced on her show with an exact replica of herself. As this copy begins to push the boundaries of Alice's internet identity, the control that Alice has over her life and the men in it vanishes. While she, re- she's, this sounds very, very interesting. While she struggles to regain what she's lost, she slowly finds herself drawn back to her show and to the mysterious person who has taken her place. Director Daniel Goldhaber won Best New Director at both Fantasia Fest and the Brooklyn Horror Festival this year, and we have an interview with his cinematographer Kaylin Arismendi on the site. It's actually been playing at Alamo Draft House, and I think it was part of that Fantastic Fest uh, series that they had in Brooklyn as well, and other smaller indie theaters over the past month or so, and it, it is supposed to be pretty wild. I, I saw the trailer that just debuted about a week ago, um, and it seems kind of Hitchcockian with the cam girl kind of thing. It seems cool. Woo-woo. Shout out to Kate. She is really an up-and-coming DP and also has a great Instagram to follow if you like to follow, if you get, like to get some, you know, inspirational cinematographer follows on Instagram. And coming to theaters on November 16th is Widows. Widows is Steve McQueen's latest film, and I actually got a chance to sit in at its world premiere to a sold-out crowd at the Toronto International Film Festival a couple months ago. It was pretty awesome. Um, It's the Academy Award winner's most accessible feature, I think. You know, he's got Shame, Hunger, uh, and 12 12 Years a Slave. slave. So all pretty intense movies. This one is a blockbuster heist movie, and it's got a stellar cast, including Viola Davis, Liam Neeson, who again, Liam Neeson everywhere these days, Colin Farrell, Daniel Kaluuya, and Elizabeth Dobecki. Um, I've never heard of Elizabeth Dobecki before. I just saw the tale. And she has a pretty prominent role in that. She's she's movie. really yeah. great in uh, in Widows. Really? Uh, kind of steals the show a bit. This cast is out of control. Set in contemporary Chicago, amidst a time of turmoil, four widows accept a debt left behind by their dead husband's criminal activities. While it might be a bit paint by the numbers in terms of plot, many of the characters are inventive in their inclusiveness, I guess would be the word to say it. Um, it's not like... You know, we see these heist movies again and again, like Ocean's Eleven or Ocean's Twelve, and it's just a bunch of uh, rich white dudes trying to get more money. Um, and this is the like one of the most diverse and progressive sort of like reimaginings of that sort of tropic uh, genre that I've seen, um, and it's a lot of fun. So I would definitely say check it out. I sat down with the editor of the film, Joe Walker, who has edited every one of McQueen's previous films, as well as many of Denis Villeneuve's uh, movies, and we'll link to that podcast episode in the post. 
Also opening in theaters on Friday is Jin, which is the debut feature from writer-director Nigel Amuman. It won the special jury recognition for writing at the 2018 South by Southwest Film Festival, where it premiered. Uh, it's an extremely personal feature debut. Jin explores the rocky, awkward, and ultimately accepting relationship between a teenage girl named Summer and her mother, who has recently converted to Islam. And while the film could be considered a coming-of-age tale, it, it often feels like one in reverse, because rather than highlight a child looking for approval from her parents, here a parent who is outcast by both her job and family due to new religious pursuits looks to be understood and appreciated by her child. Uh, Mewman and her cinematographer Bruce Francis Cole spoke with me for the film's premiere at South by Southwest about knowing when to go into production, how to identify the perfect collaborators on your first feature, and how in-camera filters and colors can subtly emphasize character. It's a very personal story for Mewman and one definitely worth checking out this weekend. And now moving on to uh, grant and event deadlines. On December 3rd, the Film Independent Documentary Lab has their deadline. If you've got a feature documentary at the rough cut stage or an early post-production in a few exceptional cases, why not apply to Film Independent's mentorship program? That includes exposure to industry professionals, a pass to the L.A. Film Festival, and year-round mentorship. The L.A. Film Festival has just shut down. Really? They did, yeah, they announced it like a week ago or so. So, so maybe the not. Pass, maybe the, the passes aren't included the pass anymore. Pass may not be worth it anymore. They, they decided to, after 18 years, LA Film Festival is no more. Well, and this week in the burying the lead segment. Yeah, so, so you may still get a pass, but I wouldn't book your tickets. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, even without the LA Film Festival, it's an intensive five-week program designed to help filmmakers who are currently in post-production on their feature-length documentary films. Through a series of meetings and workshops, the Documentary Lab provides creative feedback and story notes to participating filmmakers while helping them to strategize for their completion, distribution, and marketing of their films. Additionally, for 2019, one lab participant will snag $10,000 in support from Susan Murdy Documentary Film Fellowship. And in festival deadlines, November 16th, that's to tomorrow, you've got a deadline for the Cinequest Film and VR Festival This one takes place in San Jose, California, from March 5th to the 17th, 2019. This is the extended deadline, so it is your last chance to submit. This festival was voted Best Film Festival by USA Today readers, who are a very film festival-going crowd. I don't trust them. Um, Although, when I lived in the Bay Area, this was meant to be like one of the most... uh, It's a really big new festival. It's a big deal, and people really enjoy being part of it. Filmmakers really enjoy being part of it. Um, it programs 85 to 90% of its festival from paid submissions annually, the highest percentage of the world's most influential film festivals. So in other words, it's programming films that actually, you know... Are submitted. Yeah, that's like, it's like a good um, indicator for you all. It's not just like they're programming their friends and things they've seen at other festivals. They're actually taking from the pool of applicants. Also... As an Academy Award qualifying festival for the short film categories, Cinequest is proud to honor the winners of its Best Short Narrative and Best Short Animation prizes. And also with the deadline of November 16th, this Friday, is the Sene Film Festival, which takes place from May 14th through May 18th in Providence, Rhode Island. 25% of submitted films were selected for screening last year, and festival programmers personally review every film submission. Last year, 50 films received jury or audience awards, and all winners of jury awards received personalized trophies. Like it might be your face on one of them. Uh, Selected films received two all-access passes to the festival, and films not selected will still receive a free Sene Festival Weekend Film Access Pass, good for all films on the Friday and Saturday. 
which is pretty cool. That's so you, you awesome. Know, I you thought, yeah. You submit and you still get to go. Yeah, you so that's nice. spend like 25 bucks on a submission fee and you still get a all-access film pass for two days. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. And on November 19th, the early bird deadline for FilmQuest takes place. Oh, not to be confused with CineQuest. Nope. This festival takes place September 6th to the 14th, 2019 in Provo, Utah. It's one of Movie Maker Magazine's 30 bloody best genre fests in the world, which is, I guess, <laughs> is a that, new list from Mommy because like, I haven't really seen it before. Is, is Mommy British? Like 30 bloody best or, I feel or like is you've it you've influenced Mom. Like your horror passion has, has influenced your mother. Well, I'm definitely going to check that list out. I, I was going to do that last night and then I forgot. Mom's um, 30 bloody best genre fests in the world? Yep. Huh. And it was also twice named to Mommy's Top 50 <laughs> Film Festivals worth the entry fee. Uh, so big on mommy's list. Um, it's also one of the top 100 best reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway, and the juries award filmmakers in over 45 individual categories, which is pretty impressive for a single genre festival. Um, I, uh, yeah, I like what kind of categories? 45 categories, like uh, torture tons. film, yeah, probably best head Snuff explosion, porn, yeah, closest to in relation to Mandy, oh, yeah, closest in relation to Mandy award. I think it's really weird that this festival is in Provo, the heart of Mormon country. Yeah, I was looking at it too because uh, I I submit my own short there and um, I like part of this is like if my short actually does get into these festivals, then like where would I actually want to go to? And Provo, Utah isn't really, no offense to FilmQuest, but it's not really on the top of my list of destinations. I don't know, talk to mommy about it. But honestly, like the programming and the Festival looks awesome, so I had to do it, and I'll, I'll go if I get in. <laughs> Which you sure. will. Wow. Well, hey, don't say that. Knock on wood right now. Uh, oh, where's wood? I don't where's think wood? there's real wood furniture in this booth. Well, Ikea is fine. <laughs> Knock on Ikea. And now. <laughs> what time is it, Liz? It is time to bust a rhyme, to eat a lime, to. to Commit a crime? <laughs> Why is it always time to bust a rhyme? What's. I well, feel like it's always time, but don't you think it's always time? Because it's always time to bust a rhyme. Words of wisdom doesn't, there's no rhyme. It's, I you guess can't it's like rhyme a, the it's word alliterative, wisdom, but. Well, there's reason. Well, it is the fall season. Oh. <laughs> to commit some treason. I'm just confused about We're why rhyming has anything to do with this section. Well, guys, <laughs> it's time for words of wisdom. Thanks, Eric. And I had mentioned the tale earlier, which uh, is a narrative film by documentary, typically documentary filmmaker Jennifer Fox, and it is about, uh, in long story short, sexual abuse that she experienced at the age of thirteen. And the narrative feature is her casting Laura Dern as Jennifer Fox as herself, uh, essentially looking back over that because for a long time she felt that she was in a relationship with an older man and didn't see herself as a victim. She was 13. He was in his 30s or 40s. And obviously things come out. And Elizabeth Dobecki is in this film uh, as well. And so when casting the younger 13-year-old Jenny Fox, I had asked Jennifer Fox uh, what kind of goes into there's some very sensitive material and sensitive scenes in there and how do you can cast a child actor and work with them with this kind of tough material and jennifer fox said quote 
I think the first thing is really casting, 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 because it's your job. And we do the same in documentary. I think that's what made me prepared for it. It's your job to cast people who can really tolerate the process and the script. And so making sure you cast somebody who's a child who's really comfortable with the subject matter and whose parents are comfortable with it is crucial. There's an old saying, you don't just cast the child, you cast the parent. I think that's really true. It's not like there were a million young actresses who could have played the young Jenny. I only found one, and that was after a two-year search with my casting director. And Isabel was the only one I felt could play it without overacting, and also who could tolerate the script comfortably and wasn't shocked by it, and whose parents felt comfortable with it. Clearly, we took enormous protections to protect Isabel on set. She was not in any of the physical scenes with Jason Ritter, who plays the older man, who's the abuser. Those were shot separately with an adult body double, and she was shot on a vertical bed. She didn't even hear the words that Jason spoke, which are quite sensational and provocative in a sexual nature. I think you really have to think out how you're taking care of the child and also who you're casting. That would be my biggest advice. So along with having a body double, there are still some scenes where the younger actress is having these extended scenes of dialogue that are very sexual in nature. And I'm always curious how you do get the parents. I guess you kind of find the parents' acceptance very early on in the casting process, and then you work very delicately you know, with that actress who sometimes you wonder if they know the words that they're really talking about. 13, you probably do. But even younger sometimes when you see younger actors working with explicit material, uh, I'm always curious as to the best way to kind of coach that performance, if you will, because you're also explaining or not, or maybe hiding some of the situation that they're playing at the same time to get the performance. Well, it sounds like she said that this young actress wasn't even in this all the scenes with the older actor. Yeah, and it looks like sometimes they shot reverse shot and they may not have been working off of each other at all times. Uh, it looks pretty seamless in the movie though, um, so it is well put together. And I uh, remember back at Sundance this was one of the most talked about movies. I mean, I felt like everywhere I went someone was like, the tail, the tail, but it seems like such sub- tough sub- subject matter that like I haven't quite been able to bring myself to see it. Yeah. Do you have any like it's, it's, words of sort of like how to prepare yourself emotionally for watching uh, this movie? I mean, it's... It's interesting because half of the movie is the adult Jennifer Fox thinking back and trying to find these people who committed this these acts to her and other women who may have been affected by it. So you are kind of getting an adult perspective as well. So you don't completely – you're not only in the child's world. So it's not so uh, overwhelming at times because you do kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel and who mm. she became mm-hmm. as this documentary filmmaker. So it, there is – it's not a positive – kind of movie, but I mean, it's not as overbearing as maybe the story sounds as like, right. I don't want to watch this. That um, helps. Thanks, yeah, Eric. Yeah, it premiered on HBO earlier this year, so definitely check it out. All right, and I've got a shout out. Shout outs? There's no song for shout outs. You still work, gotta work on There's it. There's Shout by Tears for Fears. Ooh, mm. that's a good one. Let it all out. So shout out to those of you who actually own an Oculus Rift. You can now watch all three parts of Friend of the Pod, Eliza McNitt's breathtaking series called Spheres. We've mentioned it several times here as it rolled out throughout the year at Sundance, South by Southwest, and Tribeca. This is the one that made history by selling in a seven-figure deal back at Sundance, and it's produced by Darren Aronofsky and narrated by Millie Bobby Brown, Jessica Chastain, and Patti Smith. But it's not just about the accolades and big names. It is truly a captivating journey through space, portrayed in a way that could only be conveyed through virtual reality. It's not just a shtick. It's it's embedded in the sort of way you experience it. So if you have an Oculus Rift or can get your hands on one, it is really worth a watch. I feel like 
they spent more money buying this movie than people have spent on Oculus Rifts. That is possible. <laughs> How do you, where could you buy one? Could you go to like a Best Buy or something yeah. and buy mm-hmm. an Oculus Rift? Yeah, okay. get them online, get them at electronic stores. They're out there. Okay. And next week on the show, on Monday, uh, the interview podcast is with Laszlo Neems and Julie Jacob of Sunset. Uh, Neems is probably best known for his previous feature, uh, his first feature, Son of Saul. Um, and I saw Sunset back at Toronto International Film Festival where it was it was my third favorite film, but that's behind Roma and First Man. Uh, so, I mean, those are two massive movies, and I was not expecting this one to, like, even crack the top five, really. Uh, and it kind of just blew me away. Uh, and Lazo is an extremely well-spoken director. He's got great ideas about, you know, what it takes to make it as a contemporary uh, director, and um, Julie is an angel. <laughs> what was her What was her part in it? Julie is the main uh, protagonist of the film, oh, okay. um, and there's like not a single moment where she is not on camera. She gives an incredible performance. Um, I, I I'm gonna see this movie again, probably in theaters. It was because it's just like completely immersive. If you have any idea, if you've seen Son of Saul, you know sort of like the level of intimacy that Neems brings to the screen, where like you really feel like you're following his characters, um, and it makes it like very intense and very suspenseful. And that sort of uh, that sort of um, strategy is brought to Sunset as well. Uh, it is about a Hungarian hat heiress, <laughs> the heiress to a hat store, um, and sort of the nefarious, uh, uh, I guess, like happenings that surround this hat store and uh, the uh, political landscape of this. I think it's Budapest. Um, it might be another place in Hungary, but it's it's a historical epic noir. Uh, it's crazy. I, I really Holy cow. It. So I did not know that. And what you did not know is that my grandmother um, was a Hungarian hat maker. No way. So I wow. really have to see it. Now I'm kind of freaked out. Oh, yeah. Out. Oh, yeah. You should definitely see it then. Wow. It'll resonate hard with you. Yeah. Oh, cool. But <laughs> well, she was not an heiress. So unfortunately, wish. the wealth no. did not travel no, down. No. Well, you would be the heiress. Oh, right. yeah. I guess so. No, there wasn't much left from the hat business that my <laughs> grandma was part of. <laughs> anyway, so stay tuned for that. It's uh, quite the conversation. Um, I'm not sure when the movie is coming out. I think it's coming out next year. But, uh, you know, if, if it'll probably, I don't know if it will be in you. Know, We'll keep you posted. Maybe it'll be submitted. I'm hoping that it'll be like an Oscar. It'll it'll be an Oscar nominee. Oh, the Hungarian Oscar uh, entry. Because Neem's won an Oscar for uh, uh, for Son of Saul. So pretty cool to interview a Academy Award winning director. Absolutely. Uh, We should find out soon. Don't the don't all the Oscar foreign Oscar nominees uh, get submitted pretty soon? Soon, yeah. Um, I yeah, I think so. We'll keep our eyes on it and let you guys know. But meanwhile, Monday will be great. Yeah, and uh, that's about it for the show today. Um, as always, you can read about everything you heard on the show and more at No Film School. Follow us if you don't already, or subscribe uh, on SoundCloud or whatever you know, po- Apple, whatever podcast platform you use. Uh, and if you like us, go ahead and give us a five star rating. If you don't, let us know how we can make you like us, please, because we're always we always want you to like us. We strive for improvement. Um, I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. I'm at Eric Lures. You can follow me at Eric Lures. 
Eric, 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 at no film school. I won't see you next week because it's Thanksgiving. These guys will be here. But happy mm. Thanksgiving, turkeys. Stay tuned for the roast of Liz Nord, Woo! our new annual Thanksgiving <laughs> roast of Liz, oh, Liz Lord, the Sliz Nord. Oh, uh, time wow, to bust a rhyme. We've you already see, got it see, out. It is time to bust a rhyme. Wow. So that'll happen next week. Yeah, we're, gonna, we're just going to talk about Eli Roth's uh, Thanksgiving trailer from Grindhouse for about an hour. So <laughs> join us for that episode. It should be very enlightening. Look forward to that. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.